0: Modern Murders covers topics that may not be suitable for young children. Listener discretion is advised. Sources for our episodes can be found in the show notes. Photos relating to the episode can be found on our Twitter at Modern Murders. Join our Facebook discussion group and tell us what you think of the case. Welcome to Modern Murders. I'm your host, Ariel. And I'm Nate. So how are you doing today, Nate?
1: I'm doing all right. It's a tough day today, but everything worked out okay. It's just it's over here in Buffalo, New York. It is just oppressively hot right now. So
0: (laughs) it's like that all the time here in California. (laughs) I know. Oh, I know. (laughs) You can take it back. I know, right? (laughs) Well, I can't say that I'm jealous of where you're at right now. So we had some pretty nice weather here today. Let's get into this case today. Um, This case is about Oscar Julius Grant III, and we're going to talk a little bit about his murder by police brutality. And this is something that a lot of 2020 has seen a lot of recently. This case actually takes place in 2009. So this was 11 years ago, but yet we're still seeing it present to this day. So I wanted to go a little bit over Oscar's beginnings, because I think that's very important when telling a story. He was born on February 27th, 1986. He grew up in Hayward, California, which is in the Bay Area. His mom, Wanda, worked as a USPS supervisor, and his biological father was serving a life sentence for murder, so he was mainly raised by his mother. Oscar was active in his local church, and he liked to fish, play basketball, and baseball as a kid. Oscar worked at various jobs. He worked at KFC, Medical Delivery Service, Farmer Joe's, pretty much anything that paid minimum wage or maybe a little bit above that, but he was always working. He dropped out of high school early, but he later received his GED while serving time for a weapons possession charge. While in prison, he found his passion for cutting men's hair, and he was a productive inmate. He had a total of five arrests on his records, which involved anything from a broken taillight to selling ecstasy at parties. He was considered by friends to be a doting father and loyal friend. He had a four-year-old daughter named Tatiana with his fiancée, Sofina Mesa. Two days before Oscar's death, Sofina and him talked about moving into an apartment together and getting married. During Christmas, Oscar told his uncle Cephas that he wanted to attend barber school and start his career as a barber so that he could provide for his family. He also told his uncle that he was done getting in trouble and that he wanted to move to a quieter neighborhood to raise his daughter.
1: In Oscar Grant, what you're seeing is someone who oftentimes, when it comes to a situation of police brutality, he's already got. Two strikes against him, um, and you know he's a black man, and his father is serving a life sentence for murder. So th- those are things that they're already held against him. But on the other hand of that, you're also looking at someone who realizes that he wants to break that cycle, and through you know being incarcerated, he found what he could say was his calling so that he could turn his life around and he could do better for himself and for his family. And um, it just makes what we're getting ready to talk about all the more unfortunate.
0: Yeah. And there's another person to this story that I want to go into with the background. And I'd actually like for you to tell his story, if you can, Um, can you tell us a little bit about the officer that would cross paths with Oscar on January 1st, 2009?
1: So the, the officer's name was, um, this is Officer Johann Sebastian Messerl. He was born on August the 12th, 1982 in Germany. He grew up in Napa, California, though. Um, so he graduated uh, high school from New Tech and then graduated from Napa Valley College and Police Academy in 2006. And so um, people that knew him will tell you that he wanted to go into law enforcement to help people. And he started working as a BART police officer in 2007. So up to this point, he had no disciplinary issues. Everyone thought he was very laid back and helpful. At six weeks prior to Oscar's death, he was named in an excessive force lawsuit. That included five other officers, but... The judge ultimately sided with the, with the police department. So that is really something to keep in mind. Um, when this happened, he was 27 years old. Now, a couple interesting things here to keep in mind is that um, his girlfriend was nine months pregnant and due, um, and he decided to work that night, uh, but was on call for his girlfriend if she'd gone into labor. She went
0: into labor this night and then had the baby the next day. And I think it's very interesting because you have two men growing up in the Bay Area, relatively close in age, but with completely different backgrounds and completely different paths. But at the root of everything, they were one had a family already and one starting a family and their lives sort of intersected on this night. Because you have Johannes Messerl, he was on call that night and could have been called away from his job that night for his girlfriend, had she gone into labor earlier. And then you also have Oscar Grant, who was going out to hang out with friends, which we'll get into in a little bit. And he was planning with his four-year-old daughter the next day. So they were both making plans, they were both looking towards the future, yet one of them is going to lose their life and i think the thing to note is that the universe is very interesting the way that everything falls into place and we're looking at this in hindsight and going if one thing had changed maybe this would have been different
1: or hadn't happened at all
0: right yeah they could both be still alive so i think it's a very interesting story this is why i I wouldn't say like this story, but I feel like in terms of these situations where things just come to happen by chance, and not entirely by chance, obviously, there were some decisions made here, but uh, the way that it, when you see everything and looking back at it, it, it's very interesting. So I wanted to go over the, the 24 hours leading up to the event, and this event would take place starting December 31st, 2008. Oscar brought over some crabs, three to be exact, to his grandma's house because she was making uh, some gumbo, and everybody brought their own sort of sausage and uh, seafood, and so he was to bring the crabs to contribute to this gumbo. And not only were they celebrating New Year's Eve, but they were also celebrating his mom's birthday. Her birthday was on January 1st, and so they wanted to do a pre-birthday celebration for her. He told his daughter, Tatiana, that he wanted to go out with his friends that night, which is something that any parent that was 30 would do. He told her that if she let him go out that night and she stayed back with her grandma and was really on her best behavior, that he would take her to Chuck E. Cheese the next day for pizza. And she was totally down for this. I mean, what kid wouldn't? You know, you get to go to Chuck E. Cheese if you let your dad go out and have fun that night. So he went out. And before they left... His mom, Wanda, told Oscar to take the BART that night because she didn't want them drinking and driving or driving and having drunk drivers on the road. She felt like it was safer to take the BART, especially since Oscar was going to be with his fiancée, Sophina, and his four friends that night. So she felt like it would be safer to go as a group. And so they went to the uh, Embarcadero in San Francisco. They took the BART from Hayward, uh, which was, you know, close to the... Um, Oakland station. And they were hanging out on the Embarcadero. They decided to go home. It was, you know, a little bit probably after, you know, uh, New Year's Day. And they were all riding the BART back. And the train was really packed. I mean, the BART is normally busy on any holiday, but New Year's Eve especially is going to be jam-packed with people. So there was literally everybody standing up. It was a crowd. You had to just shuffle past people just to get from one side to the other. And when Oscar was kind of shuffling around, you know, through the the BART train, a friend of his named Katie saw him on the train and she said hi to him and she said, hey, hey, are you Oscar Grant? And she wanted to get his attention to say hi. And they they made eye contact. They said hi to each other. You know, they were kind of yelling because it was so loud with everybody on board And this guy overheard her saying his name, and his name is uh, David Horowitz. And he actually was in prison at the same time that Oscar Grant was, and they hated each other. It was said that there might be a gang rivalry, but I think the reason they didn't like each other is because this other guy was part of a white supremacy movement. Anybody on that train would probably not like this guy. (laughs) Um, So... He kind of said something to him, to Oscar, and that pissed Oscar off, and they started kind of having a scuffle on the train and throwing elbows, and it kind of got a little bit chaotic with everybody on board. So the fight that broke out between them made it very easy to separate them because it was a big group of people. You can easily put people in front of them and get them to you know either side of the train. And Oscar's friends also joined into the fight to help and, you know, help fight with this other guy's friends, too. It was like all these people fighting together. It was kind of like a bar fight scene where everybody's throwing punches and people are screaming and yelling. And uh, this chaos um, alerted the train conductor and also security. And they ended up calling security for the uh, platform for the station they were about to come up with or about to come up on, which was Fruitvale Station. And the police were also called by passengers. So why don't you kind of pick up from there and kind of tell the story of how the officers came onto the platform and what kind of unfolded when they entered the Fruitvale station and the train stopped.
1: All right. So le- so leading up to that, like you said, it, it was super, super chaotic. Uh, but the first officer on the scene was Officer Anthony Peroni. And um, when he got there, he just he started arresting arresting Oscar's friends and noticed Oscar and pulled him out of the train. Officer Peroni was seen by witnesses as being aggressive and yelling. So um, definitely kind of throwing his weight around to take control of the situation, which in a high stress situation like that, I think that's something that you could assume a police officer would do. Um, there in total ended up being nine officers on the Fruitvale Station platform in response to this incident. This is uh, at January 1st, 2009 at 2 a.m. This is when Officer Massuril arrived to the platform to join Officer Peroni. Now, Oscar gets a call from Sophina at 205 and at 209 telling her that you know he's still on the platform, he's with police, and he's also seen on video talking on the phone and then hanging up with her so there are three videos that were taken of the incident by passengers most were on like digital cameras though so one of the videos uh, there's um you can see four men are um set they're set up against the wall on the platform and then you see oscar pulls out his phone holds it up to his ear and then hangs up and you know, he points with his right arm to something. Um, and so this is kind of like one of those things, again, it's he's just a regular guy. He's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, you know, he's trying to let his fiance know that, you know, everything's going to be okay. That um, He's just, he got into some trouble. He's with the police. He's probably even telling her hey, everything's going to be okay. You know, you just wait up for me. Um, so it's at this point, Oscar gets up, and there's a red laser scene on, on his chest. Now, there's a bald officer. This is Officer Peroni. Actually forces him back down onto the ground in a sitting position. Now, all of the men that are detained, they have their hands visible. Now, from here, the camera does get a little bit shaky. But you can see that his friend is... He's on his knees with his hands behind his back while the officers are trying to cuff him. Oscar's also on his knees and he's facing Officer Peroni while he's talking to him. So An officer comes behind Oscar to cuff him, and while Oscar turns around, he falls onto his back, and uh, Officer Peroni puts his hand on Oscar's head, and then the two officers force him to the ground and flip him over to his chest. This is where things really kind of start to fall apart from here. Um, Peroni puts his knee on Oscar's head, um, while putting his hand on the friend that's already cuffed. He's, so he's like detaining two people at the same time in this video, and he's yelling at them and just being aggressive, just like the witnesses had previously stated. Um, now, the officer, he's he is having a hard time cuffing Oscar, so Peroni turns back to Oscar to put more pressure on his back with his hand on his head and his knee on his shoulders. And so now the, then the accompanying officer... Um, who's having trouble gets up. He says, looks at am I'm, I'm going to tase him. Um, and the, you can, you can see a reflection and it's actually his gun. And so, and so the, this is officer Masurl. He goes to tase him. This is where he uh, actually takes out. He He's going to be taking out his gun. This is actually how Oscar is killed. He's shot in the back. Oscar, he's seen in pain on the video as well. Um, he's trying to turn over onto his back again, It's a digital camera video, so there are times if you do endeavor to watch these videos, I just want to make sure that you all understand, anyone listening, that they are disturbing. So watch it at your own discretion.
0: What we're going to talk about later is that he may not have intended to shoot him. He intended to tase him, but there are two conflicting stories with that statement. The part that really got me... And this is left out of the tape because the videotapes don't really have audio. And there's three of them. So this one I decided to make notes of because it is the clearest tape out there that shows the entire duration of the arrest and the shooting. The other ones are on cell phones, which back then in 2009, cell phones were terrible for taking any video. It's almost like pixelated and grainy. And then you had another perspective from a witness on a train, but the video is behind a pillar. So it's very difficult to see exactly what's going on. So this one video that we just uh, played out to you is the best one to watch if you want to get a full idea of what happened. But again, it is disturbing in a way because you're ultimately seeing somebody get shot and killed and the reaction from his friends, they are, visibly shaken and freaking out they are panicking because nobody expected this to happen and even officer massural freaked out right after saying oh shit i shot him so i do want to note that officer peroni again was the aggressor and while he had his knee and his full weight on oscar's head he was yelling bitch ass and then the n-word at oscar And Oscar responded with, I can't breathe and I surrender. And as I say that, I get goosebumps because I feel that I can't breathe statement is so pivotal right now to the Black Lives Matter movement. And the fact that this happened in 2009 and you have these cases so similar where you have one officer with his knee ultimately on his head slash neck and a guy saying, I can't breathe. The parallels are just undeniable at this point.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, and it's a when when you you talk about um, Officer Peroni being the aggressor, it, it's he's 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 intentionally you know, building up yeah that that stress that you are mentioned you you had mentioned that Officer Massaro was he was under the that that high stress situation that ultimately led to him shooting and killing Oscar. He he's he's building up on that intentionally because he wants Oscar and his friends to give them a reason. That's what he's doing. And that's something that you find all too common in situations like this with law enforcement as well.
0: Yeah, and Officer Masurl, um, you know, by colleagues, was um, described as being pretty even. He wasn't an emotional guy. He wasn't hot-headed. He was pretty uh, mellow in terms of the way he approached life and and stressful situations. And so I think that this situation and the way that Officer Peroni was acting definitely escalated the situation. And when you have a train packed full of people and you have a fight that just broke out, tensions are going to be high. The last thing you want to be doing is screaming at people and yelling the N-word at them, especially in the Bay Area when a lot of the train riders are going to be people of color. So it was a very tense situation and a lot of the witnesses were getting really riled up because of this situation. And in the video, if you can find one with audio, you can hear people saying, you know, what the F, why are you doing this? Why are you arresting him? Don't be so aggressive. You know, so a lot of the witnesses were getting pretty worked up about this too. And then when you hear the shot, you can hear everyone just kind of gasp and say, oh my God, did he just shoot him? And, you know, when Officer Miss shoots Oscar, realizing he just shot him and not with his taser, he kind of puts his hands on his head and he kind of doubles over, like as if he wasn't expecting that to happen. So it seems like the initial reaction is somewhat genuine. But again, when I was researching this case, I found some things that came up that just didn't sit right with me. So Oscar was rushed to the hospital in Oakland where he was pronounced dead at 9.13 a.m. on January 1st, 2009. The cause of death was determined to be an entry wound from his lower back. And what happened, the reason why it was so fatal is because it ricocheted off of the concrete platform at the station and it re-entered his body into his chest and pierced his lung. Johannes's girlfriend actually gave birth to their child on january 2nd so i think the stress of the situation might have put her into labor especially since she was already so due to give birth
1: well let me tell you something just as some as an expecting father um like any time like within a like within a month like uh, of like, like, like within a month of the due date, that's when like, you're really expecting. And like, I mean, can you imagine just, and, and this is just like uh, on behalf of Johannes, um, like just you going in, you're like, okay, you know what? I'm going to work tonight. Should be, you know, it's New Year's Eve. So shouldn't be any more than a couple of drunks. Everything's going to be okay. But if you go into labor, I'm, I'm going to come right away. If you go into labor and he's, he's ready. He's got that in, in his mind. Right. And then all of this happens. And like all of this, all of this starts, it starts to unfold and it starts happening. And he's he like in his head, he's probably thinking to himself, how in the hell am I going to get to my girlfriend? If she goes into labor, how, how, how am I going to make it to her? And that's, that's something, and that's aside from all of the, uh, aggression and the and antagonistic behavior that officer peroni was laying onto the situation to escalate it in ju- with johannes he i can i guarantee you i would bet i would bet the house on it that he was already stressed out at this situation unfolding because he's thinking about his girlfriend and his child
0: yeah so also to note too, uh that i mentioned before is that Meanwhile, while Oscar um, is dying, his mother is getting the call on her birthday that her son has passed away. So again, there's these things that fall into play that just make this story so much more tragic. You have one person bringing in and welcoming a new life, and you have another person mourning the death of her son and it's just really kind of full circle in a way in a morbid twisted way and they did do an investigation initially uh on officer Misyril basically a protocol of drug testing him because whenever you're involved in these situations that involve you pulling your weapon and firing it they automatically want to you know check and make sure that you don't have any drugs in your system and they did come back negative, but that's pretty much to the extent that the investigation by the BART authorities went through, because Johannes resigned on January 7th from the BART police station to avoid the investigation. Because this situation blew up, because of this, uh, the digital camera footage, it got leaked, and I believe it got leaked onto YouTube back when YouTube was very um, still in its infant stages, kind of, and this spread like wildfire. So Officer Masurl and his family had to relocate to a friend's home in Lake Tahoe in the meantime. Also, I think that with the birth of his new daughter and the stress of this situation, he was probably going through a lot of different emotions that he couldn't comprehend. And getting away from the Bay Area, he probably felt was the best situation for right now
1: definitely the best situation for his family because that that's just something that's super unfortunate when you have um when you've got when you've got family members they're immediately and automatically tied to what you've done in a situation like that even if like they obviously like i mean his wife and his or not his wife his girlfriend and his uh and his newborn didn't have anything to do with that but I mean, they're part of it now, and so, but yet, yeah, definitely. I mean, he's, you know, get he's hearing a lot of things about himself. He's probably getting some death threats tossed his way, and um, I'd imagine, I'd imagine that there are, you know, some people that are talking about hurting his girlfriend and his kid too. And yeah, you, yeah, I mean, re- regardless of how wrong you are in a situation, you got to protect your family, and so yeah, him relocating that way was the best thing that he could have done
0: yeah he pretty much put a target on anyone with the last name miss searle so or anyone associated with his address so he definitely had to relocate and while he was resigning on january 7th oscar grant the third was buried on the same day at his local baptist church in hayward and this was the same church that he was active in since childhood so the grief was tremendous and felt by the entire congregation. And I'm sure that all those women in that congregation felt like they might have lost a son or a nephew or, you know, it's, when you grow up with somebody in your church, you really get attached to them and you get to know them and their family and you see the pain and it's just a community that's mourning a loss of somebody. So Because of this, obviously, there were protests, and they turned to riots after a full week went by, and there were no charges brought against Officer Masurl. And I can understand how that is very frustrating, because you have a, a week later after the shooting, you have this guy relocating and trying to start a new life somewhere, and... He just kind of it was looking like he was going to get away with it. And so people really, really started getting pissed off and started doing things that we're seeing in 2020, you know, burning dumpsters and, you know, breaking shop windows and everybody was pissed. I mean, it the Bay Area was grieving and traumatized by this and not to mention all those people that witnessed this murder in front of their eyes were definitely uh, changed after this. So on January 8th, a peaceful protest of 500 people turned out and they occupied the Fruitvale station platform where Oscar was killed. They started uh, marching from the Fruitvale station and they marched all the way to the police station in downtown Oakland. And I did uh, look up this route and it would have taken about roughly over an hour for them to march and, it would have been about four miles. So Fruitvale Station wasn't that far away from downtown Oakland. The Alameda County District Attorney Tom Orloff charged Officer Miss Searle with the murder and added that the killing was intentional and unjustified. As
1: it should be. That that that's exactly how that should be ruled. And it's just I mean, you know, and what's 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 so interesting and so polarizing about the about this. Um, especially because like you you've mentioned um, everything that's going on like right now in 2020 and they t- this took place 11 years ago. So I mean 11 years ago, you have a young black man who shot in the back and killed during what you would think is just what a lot of people would think is just a routine detaining for a fight that broke out. And on and on, on New Year's Eve, no less. I mean you how, how many fights you how many how many drunk fights do you think break out on New Year's Eve? and then you know the cops come and they go, okay, everyone break it up. We're gonna throw you guys in the drunk tank for the night. you're gonna sleep it off. you're gonna be best friends in the morning. No one gets killed. no one gets hurt. everyone's fine, right And you ha- you have this situation where the this a young black man is on he's belly down. And he's shot in the back, and he's killed. And there are protests. Um, there, there, there are protests for the uh, shooting officer, officer Misur to be charged with the shooting. And then, when he's not charged, there are full blown riots that break out. There's, there's, there are, there's violence. There's destruction of property, and those are the exact things that are happening today. And it just, one of the things that I find that I just, I wanted to say that's just so interesting is whenever this happens, how surprised the whole of the country is when it happens. And it's like, come on guys, this, this isn't new. It's, it's going to, it's going to keep happening.
0: Yeah. And I think back then in 2009, this was kind of new because In 2009, previous to that, we did have camcorders and stuff. And, you know, we did have the Rodney King situation, but that was from a journalist standpoint. Whereas this is witnesses that are taking this footage on their personal devices. And so I think that back then, from what I remember, because I, in 2009, I was graduating high school as a senior. And, I was pissed when I saw this. I had no idea that this was going on so close to my home because I was only two hours away from the Bay Area. And it just shocked everyone I knew. It shocked me. And I think that this has been going on for a very long time, but this was the first time that people were seeing it. And that people were seeing something so benign like a fight turning into a murder. And it was just, it went from bad to worse to just tragic in such a small amount of time. And I think now it's really sad that we keep seeing this to the point where people are almost used to it. You know what I mean? Even the George Floyd, like that still shakes people up. I have not watched it because I'm effing tired of watching these videos. I'm sad that there's so many out there that there's so many names that get thrown into this conversation that I just I already know it's gonna be the worst and so I think that this was a pivotal moment for the country. It was international news for sure um so do you want to talk a little bit about the trial?
1: yeah, yeah definitely yeah let let's let's go into that a little bit um yeah they compiled with you know like the the videos that you know people were taking i think there there were a total of six videos that were brought forth as evidence from like different like witness perspectives and like so what's super interesting about this is that the initial investigations and court documents actually show that officer masseral immediately talked with other officers on the platform After the shooting, explaining that, you know, he thought that Oscar had a gun in his waistband and he he couldn't see his hands, which that's like this is one of the you were mentioning earlier that there are a few things like in the in the trial that in in the explanations of the events that didn't add up this is one of those things because he said well i thought he had a gun in his waistband i couldn't see his hands and then after that you know later on he switched it up and he said oh well you know i actually meant to tase him but i pulled my gun instead
0: yeah and actually i did not really see this in any of the reporting that i found i actually found this in the court documents so this was not widely reported that he initially told officers on the platform that were surrounding him, including Officer Peroni, immediately after the shooting, saying, I couldn't see his hands. I thought he had his uh, hands in his waist pocket and I didn't know if he had a gun. And when the court documents looked at it, it was kind of impossible for Oscar to even reach anywhere near his waistband because he had his hands behind his back. And the way he was positioned... With Officer Peroni having his um, knee on his neck and his upper shoulders, he couldn't really rotate his shoulders to get them behind his back all the way. And so I think it's just really kind of a – I I was going to use the word cop-out, but maybe that is the correct term for this – he was trying to use an excuse right off the bat that a lot of officers use when they shoot somebody and then they find out they don't have a gun.
1: So, yeah, well, I mean, it's probably what they, they probably told him to say that honestly. Yeah. They, they probably just said like, Hey, just say that he had a gun. It'll be fine. He, when he, he was charged uh, he had a, a $3 million bail posted, which I think for a police officer is pretty high. It's so now the trial, it started in June, 2010, and it actually, so this is the interesting thing, is that it actually had to be moved to L.A. County because of the media attention and the death threats against Officer Massero and his family. So the the jury here was, um, I'm going to go over the, the 12-member jury. It was eight women and four men, and out of those, seven of them were white, four of them were Hispanic, and there was one Asian person. Um, now this is something that is just super interesting, and it's something that you and I had discussed is that a, a fair jury is supposed to be representative of your peers. It doesn't quite add up.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't see, I don't see seven white people and four Hispanic and one Asian in LA. That just does not, not sound all. right. The proportions are completely off. And I'm not really sure what goes into a jury selection. I know that there is a lot that goes into it and they kind of take a random pool of people and then they kind of weed them out that fits whatever prosecution and defense can agree on. So this is probably what they agreed on would be best. But I would imagine the defense was definitely pushing for the white jury and the prosecution was probably pushing for a more diverse group of a jury. I just can't believe that they couldn't get one person of color and not to say that Hispanic people are not people of color, but one black person on the jury. And even for the alternate jury, there were no black people for backup jurors. So even if one juror decided that they didn't want to do the case anymore, had to had other things come up, even the people fulfilling their spot, they were not black at all. So it's just—it's crazy to me how this happens, but maybe that's just because I don't understand how these things work.
1: Yeah, that—that was—I mean, if you think you think that's weird, I mean, so let's let's go into um, the the weapon mix-up defense, and yeah, I mean, you know, the see the superior court judge of Alameda County. This is uh, Judge C. Don Clay. He wasn't buying the weapon mix-up. He's like, "Come on, guys, really." Like I, he's he's probably sitting there going, I would have bought, I I probably would have bought the, I thought he had a gun. Had you gone with that first, but like the weapon mix up, it just does it it just doesn't make sense. But then, um, you know the the defense, the defense attorneys claimed that the one that so uh, I guess Bart County police officers. And this is something that I'm not familiar with because my time in California was actually very short. Um, but BART County police officers, they only get one day of taser training. And so the defense kind of said, well, I mean, a day of, a a day of taser training, your honor, that's not really sufficient for officer Masurl to be familiar with the differences in between his holstered weapon and his non-lethal taser. And it's that lack of training that led to the mix up, but the issue with that is that he pulled his taser twice the same night before the shooting. So he was definitely familiar with the differences in between his holstered weapon and his taser.
0: Yeah. So before you go into the, the two differences between the two weapons, I do want to point out that the, um, the Alameda County superior court judge C. Don Clay was The judge in the Bay Area, and this was before the trial got moved to L.A. County. So when they moved the uh, trial to L.A. County, there was a new judge that did not share the same sentiment that Don Clay had in this um, in this mix up with the weapon. So we're going to see a difference in the way that the judges feel. um, But Don Clay was not buying it in the beginning. And unfortunately, they moved it to L.A. County.
1: So the so the Sawyer P226, it's, it's standard black sidearm, it weighs two and a half pounds, it's got a holster and a release mechanism. So the Taser, it's black and yellow, laser sight, it weighs less than two pounds. It has an on and off switch, and it has a snap holster. So for me looking at this, if you know I'm I'm an outsider looking in on this, even if you're unfamiliar with the two different weapons you've got two different you you have two different release mechanisms you have one that has a release mechanism and one's one that's just literally in a snap holster so it's like you you you've got to be familiar with those two things before you even get to like oh well i thought it was my taser it's like but yeah you know what i'm saying
0: yeah, and I have a taser too from the taser company. And the difference between that and a gun number one, it's a lot lighter, it's not made out of metal, which I would imagine. I mean, even with metal guns, they can have you know a grip on them that may not be metal. Um, but the weight is completely different, the way you hold it in your hand is completely different. And the biggest thing to me, and maybe there's different models out there um maybe you know in 2009 as well but my taser does not have a trigger on it it has the on-off switch so you have to pull back a, a plastic window that covers the switch and then you have to push it to on and then you push the button to fire the um the taser and so for him to say oh well I got them mixed up well they don't even look the same they don't feel the same they don't fire the same and To add to this, the gun, his service weapon, is on his right side, which they call the dominant side. And his taser is on the non-dominant side, which is his left side, for a right arm pull. Mm -hmm. And so they're on completely different sides, but you use the same hand to fire the weapon. And since then, they have made the uh, taser training predominantly a uh, left-hand pull now because there have been too many mix-ups with guns and tasers. And so it is now required that officers pull the taser with their left hand because it's so awkward for them to do that that it prevents any mix-up like
1: this from happening. Right. That and I mean and that and that's good. I mean, you look at that situation and you're like, okay. Okay, guys. So since we can't apparently we can't tell the difference between a gun and a taser, this this is what you have to do now.
0: Yeah, I mean <laughs> It's ridiculous how you mix those two things up. But again, stress can do a lot to somebody's, uh, psychology. And I'm sure you'll get into that in a second.
1: Yeah. So, um, so before we even get into that, um, we've got that. So there, there were, there were a couple of expert witnesses that, um, went into this. So there was a Greg Myers, who was a, a consultant in police tactics um, he was an expert witness who basically testified It's saying that Oscar Grant had violated section 148 of the penal code when he walked back into the train after seeing, after seeing the police. And then he violated it again after being told to sit down. He stood up after being told to sit down. Um, it's so according to Greg Myers, um, Basically, Oscar was lawfully arrested for resisting for resisting a police officer. Um, And just a brief description of penal code 148. Every person who willfully resists, delays or obstructs any public officer, peace officer, et cetera, shall be punished by a fine not exceeding a thousand dollars or by imprisonment in a county jail not exceeding a year.
0: Now I just want to point out that the whole thing of him getting back on the train and then him getting up when he was told to sit down to me was such bullshit. Like how is that resisting arrest? Like how do you even know that you are arrested? They, they were not read their Miranda rights that I could find. They were not even in the process of arresting them. How do you resist arrest when an officer shows up and you walk away? Like, I, I don't understand how that is resisting arrest before an arrest even takes place.
1: What I, what I would, um, I don't want to say assume, but what I would supposition is in, is him basically stating, well, you know, he was one of the people involved in the disturbance. So it's basically kind of like, well, you know what you did, but regard regardless of that, regardless of whether he knew what he did or not, Regardless of whether he knew that the police were there for him and his friends and the other parties involved or not, I agree with you in saying, you know, he wasn't read his rights. He was not officially placed under arrest. And at the end of the day, the police, they're, they're, The police, they're the civil servants. They're the ones that are bound by these rules of engagement. So it's up to you as a police officer to say you are under arrest. It should not be on a citizen to have to ask, am I under arrest? Am I being detained? If I'm being detained, what am I being detained for?
0: Right. And, uh, you know, the situation where he was, you know, going back on the train, the situation where he stood up after sitting down he was still not being arrested it wasn't until a little bit after that that they started arresting him to where they put him on his chest and then they started saying you're under arrest up until then the police showed up because they got a call about a fight they were trying to figure out who was involved how many people were involved and try to figure out the story and i'm sorry but you don't get arrested just because you're somewhat involved or directly involved They have to figure that out first because if they start arresting people, I understand like, you know, it's very difficult to try to figure these things out and try to figure what's truth and what's not. But when officer Peroni gets on the platform and starts screaming at people to get off the effing train that automatically has set the tone and Oscar and his friends aren't having it. Like they've, they've been through this before, you know, and to them it's, They were just standing up for themselves because of this guy that was, you know, talking shit on the train. And now, you know, their whole night has been derailed and officers show up and everything. So I think to them, they weren't thinking of themselves as being arrested. They didn't do anything wrong. They got into a fight. No charges were pressed. Nobody was saying to arrest them. So I just... It, it's just frustrating to me that this penal code thing 148 just says like okay well if you walk away when an officer shows up you're automatically
1: resisting arrest yeah it's
0: yeah or you're punishable by a fine not exceeding a thousand dollars and imprisonment for up to one year like that's that's bullshit to me. Well, it is.
1: I mean, and, that, and that's the thing, is that the fact of the matter is that in order to resist arrest, in order to resist an officer, you need to be under arrest. And the problem with that is, um, especially in situations like these, officially being under arrest becomes a very subjective term, which is why an expert witness can come in the middle of this grand trial and say something like that. Now, the other expert witness, though, this is uh, William Lewinsky. He was a a retired university professor. Um, So what he testified was um, that he said that human performance is heavily impacted in a high-stress situation and explained how um, unintentional blindness caused the mix-up between the gun and the taser and so it, what basically so what you're seeing here with with these expert witnesses is it's a discrediting of Oscar Grant on one hand and then a defense of Officer Massaro on the other hand it's saying like well he was in this high stress situation there are all of these people fighting it's the middle of the night on New Year's Eve and it's like hey he just you know in this split second situation he reached for his taser he didn't see what he was doing he was just he he thought he had his taser and he pulled out his gun unintentional blindness is what they called it and it's a even even though mind you that officer massura was reaching on the wrong side it was his muscle memory that overtook his ability to process what he was doing
0: Yeah, again, if he wanted to reach for his taser, he would have had to reach with his right hand over to his left side to draw the taser, and he also would have had to undo the snap on the taser holster. What he ended up doing was reaching on his right-hand side and pushing the service weapon forward and back, I think it was three times, to release it from its holster. And this one's a little bit more difficult to... In the case that, you know, somebody tries to reach for your gun, it's difficult to take it. So in the video, you can see him kind of fumbling with his gun to try to get it loose because he was so stressed out that he was just frantic, in my opinion. The jury options were very interesting, and there were two options for each. It's hard to explain this, but so... They had uh, three options, second degree murder, which is 15 to life, voluntary manslaughter, which is three to 11 years, involuntary manslaughter, which is two to four years, and then acquittal. And with each of these varying charges, there were also two options for each. And with all of those options, which I won't go into because they're very uh, long, they range from criminal negligence to intentional murder. So once the jury decided which of the four, I guess, that they would go with, the acquittal, involuntary, voluntary, and second degree, they then had the option to pick a lesser and a higher charge, a conviction. And the deliberation was six and a half hours. And this took over two days for the jury to go over all of the evidence and all of the information relating to the case. The jury came back. And they finally had a verdict and they found officer Masurl guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Now he was sentenced to two years, but this was with time served. I hate that. (laughs) And I don't know if you caught this back when you read it, but it was $3 million bail that was posted. Mm -hmm. So he was out on bail during this entire time. And When everything was said and done, he got convicted. He got sentenced to two years. The amount of time that he served in jail was only seven months. The L.A. County judge gave him a pretty light sentence. He gave him the minimum of the involuntary manslaughter charge. Because, again, it's two to four years, and he gave him two. So the L.A. judge felt that the weapons mix-up was actually caused by a lack of training from BART. And I go back to saying this because the original judge in the case was not buying the gun and weapon mix up, but this judge was. He actually believed it, that Bart did not sufficiently train their officers enough for them to discern in a high-stress situation between a taser and a gun. When Johannes Masurl was read his sentence, he addressed Oscar's family, and he apologized by saying, "'I am deeply sorry.'" Nothing I can do will ever heal the wound that I have created. And that seems okay. But he did also caveat it with another saying, which I felt like he should have not said at all. But he said that to Oscar's family that he made the decision to use his taser because of Oscar's actions that night and not because he was Black. That to me was not necessary (laughs) to say. (laughs) To be like, I'm really sorry I killed your son. And it wasn't because he's black. It's because he was acting up that
1: night. Like When someone, so, when someone says something like that, when they, when they literally derail their own apology like that, you really have to look at that and you have to go, who coached you on that? Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about the post-trial? So, yeah, post-trial, um, so a, bu- a bunch of different stuff happened here. So, Officer Peroni, he was actually fired in 2010 and was later charged um, with um, fra- he fraudulently collecting thousands of dollars in unemployment benefits while serving in the Army. But those charges were dismissed in 2013. Um, now, Johannes... Masarle ended up changing his name. Now he's living another life somewhere else. He him and his family, they moved out of the Bay Area. Which, again, like I said before, when they had got they had gone to Lake Tahoe in the like in the apex of all of this, it's really just the best thing that he could have done for his family. And it's like, listen, you 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 did this terrible thing and you have to live with that, but you shouldn't have to make your family also carry the weight of that as well. So definitely getting them out of there, changing their names, starting fresh for them was the best thing that he could have done.
0: Yeah. And, and again, he, he got to start a family and live his life. I know that this was very inconvenient for him to go through this trial and serve seven months, but at the end of the day, he has a lifetime ahead of him Yeah, and he can live with the, uh, luxury of anonymity and although he can't work as a police officer which was his passion i'm sure he's out there working another job and kind of just laying low and under the radar
1: i'm sure he's just fine
0: so what happened after the trial
1: so there so after the trial um oscar's family actually filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against bart is so there was uh there were two settlements that were made one was made to his mom wanda in the amount of 1.5 million and one was made to his daughter Tatiana in the amount of 1.3 million. So Wanda and Cephas made—that's um, Cephas's uncle—made the Oscar Grant Foundation, which is a social a social justice organization that seeks to build trust between communities and law enforcement. Which that is super admirable for them to actually go and do something like that. Even though it was a police officer that that killed her son and his nephew, but they're going, you know what? The communities and law enforcement, if they were a little bit closer, if they understood each other a little bit more, maybe things like this wouldn't happen so often. Maybe.
0: Yeah. And I mean, she was working with the USPS Postal Service. So she was a government worker herself, and she probably realized how tough government jobs can be and how sometimes people there's there could be a misunderstanding and that things could always be better and so why be the victim when you could be the champion of change and turn your son's death into a movement and i feel like that is the best way to honor somebody's death is to try to get something good out of it and i feel like it was telling to wanda and cephas of the people that they were and the people that raised oscar because he wasn't a bad guy. He wasn't a thug, you know. He may have had arrest records, but those were anywhere from like broken taillights to selling drugs at parties. So, it's not like he was out there killing people and shooting people and all this stuff, you know. I think that his family before this situation, and I can't speak on their behalf, but in the area that they live in, I'm sure there was some level of respect for the police department before this happened. And when this happened, that changed, but they still felt enough respect to say, you know what, we know this can be better. It's not good, but we still respect it enough to want to change it for the better.
1: Absolutely. And, but yeah, that's the, and I mean, and in that, like also, they um, there's a mural of Oscar on 17th street and Broadway and just some interesting stuff about um about the BART here. Um was so, that you know in twenty sixteen there was a journalist that had uncovered that seventy-five percent of BART cameras were actually decoys. They weren't even real cameras. So those wasn't surprising. It's not it's not surprising. Oh god, okay. <laughs> They're that bad, huh? I hate Bart. <laughs> I will talk shit
0: about Bart all day long.
1: <laughs> That's fair now but so since then those have allegedly been replaced with real cameras and another interesting this is another
0: now we're down to a good like i don't know 60% or decoys <laughs> <laughs> but they replaced them but they just never fixed them after they
1: broke <laughs> they were or or here's here's the real power move they replaced them with more decoys so now here's now this is something that's super interesting, too, was that just last year in 2019, there were new documents that were released under SB 1421 that actually showed Officer Peroni had initially described his involvement in this incident as fighting for his life before Oscar was shot.
0: And again, you could watch the video and know that that is complete bullshit. There, there's no way he was fighting for his life. He had the upper hand. He was the aggressor,
1: the the entire time though, like literally the entire time
0: Yeah, before he even knew who was involved with the fight, he was out screaming and yelling at people to get off the F and train. So I don't know if that's what he meant by fighting for his life.
1: No idea, honestly, but, and guys like that, yeah, they can rewrite history at the drop, at the drop of a hat. So definitely.
0: Yeah, so I wanted to go into this study that I found that was really interesting. And this is a peer reviewed article that was published on November 5th, 2015, by Cody T. Roth. And it was used 18 times in the media. So this is not just some random underground study that I found. A lot of the articles that were using this study were the Washington Post and the LA Times um, and the SF Chronicle. And this study looked Uh, between the years of 2011 and 2014. So this doesn't include 2009, but shortly after. And it looked at these years on the county level in the United States for police interactions with people and police shooting suspects. And the study found that it was 3.5 times more likely that someone will be shot if they are Black and unarmed compared to someone who is white and unarmed. Relating to that is the 1.67 times more likely to be shot if the person is Hispanic and unarmed compared to white and unarmed. So again, these are just comparing race and the fact that they are both unarmed. The results found in all, there were very many different parameters that they set that they looked at different situations. But ultimately, in the results section of the study, they found that someone who is black and unarmed is just as likely to be shot as someone who is white and armed. So a black person who has literally no weapon on them will just as likely be shot as a white person holding a gun. That is not surprising, unfortunately, but there is a study out there that is peer reviewed that says so.
1: Yeah, I mean, and not only that. I mean, you just have to look at like you you look at so so many cases in the uh like just in the media of like there 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 are white mass shooters who are brought in alive after they've killed multiple people. But um So, um I'm sorry,
0: I cut you off. Did you want to say something?
1: No, I was I was actually, I was going to talk about the, uh, the movie.
0: I was about to go into that. I'm glad you brought it up. So you recently watched the movie. I watched it a while ago and I vividly remember it. So I didn't pay to watch it again. Um, I did watch the scene though from the movie on YouTube, which you can also find. But you recently watched the movie and that was the first time you've seen it. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the movie, what it's about, your impressions of it.
1: Um, I mean, so now this movie it came out six years later, so it's in. It, this movie came out in 2015. It's written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It's called Fruitvale Station. Um, so this this movie it really it details the last 24 hours of Oscar Grant's life. Uh, Michael B. Jordan, um, he play he plays Oscar Grant in this movie. A lot of people know him from Black Panther. He's the mosquito guy.
0: Right? He's the guy that gets bit by all those mosquitoes. Right? <laughs> That's how I always think of him. No, this was like one of his first major breakout roles because he was doing a yeah. role next to um God, what's her name? <laughs> God damn it, she won an Oscar. I should know this. It'll come. I don't to know. Me. I'll just blurt out her name, like, and I'm sure people are just like listening, like screaming.
1: It's an it's an extremely powerful film, and um it's you know I mean if you you don't want to you know go searching for like the YouTube videos which I mean are admittedly they're all a mess yeah you know, but if you you want a a good representation of what happened that night definitely check that movie out um get some tissues ready you're probably gonna cry it's really it's 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 powerful and um it can it can really kick up some dust for sure
0: Octavia Spencer that's her name there you go
1: (laughs) i had faith in you the whole time
0: (laughs) i i don't know why her name slipped my memory because i just love everything she's in and i love her acting she actually helped produce that movie i was watching an interview of uh ryan coogler and octavia spencer and she actually pitched in some of her own money to make this movie happen because she was so on board with it and um She wasn't intention. She, she did not intend to be the producer. It just kind of worked out that way because they ran out of funding for the movie. And then she's just like, I know some people I'll call them up. I'll get more money. And then she just became the producer. And she said she believed in the movie so well because of the writer, director, Ryan Coogler. And she said that anytime you have somebody who is directing the movie that they wrote, they always have such a clear picture of what the movie should look like and they're a lot easier to work with. So she just felt that Michael B. Jordan did a fantastic job at this role. He really captured the sort of persona of Oscar Grant III. And I think he did an amazing job. I definitely cried because the scene where he gets shot you see the pain in his voice. You see the pain in his face because in that moment you realize he's probably thinking about his fiance and his daughter and the plans that he made with her the following day and that he may not get to see them again, and he didn't. I mean, maybe he saw Sophina in the hospital, but I just... The movie definitely captures that moment very perfectly, I think. That's it. I mean, that's... Um, that's the life and tragic death of Oscar Grant III. And again, in 2020, we're seeing it happen all over again. Not much has changed in 11 years. And it seems to me that the wheels of justice are turning very slow with George Floyd's case. I kind of said this to myself, but somebody sort of took the words right out of my mouth and posted something on Twitter saying, if you think the protests are bad now, just wait until they find him not guilty. And I said that even if he is found guilty i mean he'll probably get two years with time served and then he's only in jail for seven months and then out of that seven months they're going to put him in solitary confinement because he's a high risk you know prison inmate and so he's just going to have to you know tough it out for seven months in confinement and then he's out and then he could change his name start a new life join the army i don't know i don't even know if you could join the army after that but um officer peroni did you know
1: right the the I mean the the ultimate point of that though is that he has a very decent chance of walking away with the walking away from all of this and still relatively being able to live his life uninhibited where George Floyd, the man that he killed, obviously there there's nothing that you can do to bring him back right for our, our law enforcement officers, is, is that the standard that we're holding them to? And is that ultimately the price that they're going to pay for killing someone in that brutal fashion is seven months time served?
0: I understand why sometimes they go with the smaller charges, because I do feel that involuntary manslaughter is a lot easier to find guilty than third or uh, first degree murder but in some of the cases that i see especially with george floyd it kind of seems like it's second degree murder in the least to me at least yeah i just don't (laughs) even if he's found guilty in in involuntary manslaughter i don't see that as justice i'm sorry i know technically it is i think that it's a case-by-case basis for sure we're looking at these situations and I just want to throw another name out there, that kind of ties into this. And that's uh, Eric Gardner. And you look at these cases and you look at Oscar Grant and he got into a fight and killed Eric Gardner sold loose cigarettes on a corner street was killed. And then you have George Floyd who allegedly was uh, carrying a counterfeit $20 bill and, and paying with it. And he was killed. So the fact that these men are dying under nonviolent crimes or not even crimes at all. We don't even know if they're guilty yet. You know, they're in the preliminary, the most preliminary stages of an investigation as to if they're even a suspect. They are murdered for literally nothing. I mean, I've, I've seen like a lot more people go to jail for way worse stuff than that. And they're in and out just fine. But. The fact that these people lose their life over something so petty, you know, it's just ridiculous to me that it escalates so far and to have somebody literally suffocating saying I can't breathe and that and that doesn't phase you. And I know some people are saying like with Eric Gardner thing, one of the most disgusting things I've ever heard people say is, oh, well, if he couldn't breathe, why was he saying I can't breathe? As someone with asthma who has literally not been able to breathe physically, I can still say I can't breathe. And I could suffocate to death by saying I can't breathe. You yeah. know, so it's it's definitely brutal for sure. These are brutal murders for nonviolent crimes, and to me, that just needs to stop. I, I don't I don't know why it took so long. I don't know why we're still having this conversation. It it really irritates me, and it really pisses me off with this society.
1: Uh, ultimately, it's. Um... We, we really need to get back to, and this is just my opinion, obviously, but I mean, we, we need to, I, and this is something I had just had um, a conversation with someone in regards to this, uh, because, and I don't know the names, uh, I, don't, I don't have any names, but um, in Atlanta, Georgia, there was a man who was just, he was shot in the back, he was running away. He was just shot, he was shot, he was shot in the back, he was killed. Um, and he, he, and he didn't die right away though. What happened was he was shot in the back as he was dying. The officers that were chasing him held him down and refused to call for medical attention, medical assistance rather. But, um, yeah, what, one of the things that I had mentioned is, um, and this is something that's like super interesting, right. Um, as, and that this is, and I just, I kind of want to close, I want to close on this. Um, is that we really need to get back to understanding that the police are supposed to be civil servants, okay? They're not a local military, okay? We have the National Guardsmen for that. That's that's what the National Guardsmen are. They're the local military. The police, they're civil servants. They are there to protect us, not what they're doing now. Now, these situations, these high-stress situations that these officers are put in that allegedly cause them to make mistakes the way that officer Masurl did by mixing up his taser and his weapon. The, the problem that I have with something like that is in all of these other, um, all, all of these other shootings and brutal murders by result of police brutality in high stress situations where these officers allegedly feared for their lives, is that you have our military, our army, and our marines have rules of engagement and de-escalation tactics that they have to follow in full combat zones. So it's like not like it's not a man they they don't have to de-escalate a man that's selling loose cigarettes on a corner. They don't have to de-escalate a man that is that got into a fight on a packed train on New Year's Eve, those aren't the situations that they're dealing with. They're potentially dealing with a woman or a child that could potentially be a suicide bomber.
0: Yeah, or held hostage.
1: Or held hostage. And they still have to follow those de-escalation tactics and if they're found to have broken those they're essentially they're breaking the geneva convention they're breaking the rules of engagement they're breaking a code of war and they can be court-martialed they can be dishonorably discharged and they can be put in prison
0: yep yep
1: and and it's just i will never back down from just not I, i i will never entertain the idea of defending that our civil servants, our police officers can't be bothered to, at the very least, the bare minimum, just show the same discretion that our military has to show in an active combat zone.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, you took the words right out of my mouth. And to be honest, I could talk an hour about just that point alone. I know a lot of people don't want to militarize the police and I don't either. But if there's anything that we can take from the military, it's the training that they get, the extensive training that they get to de-escalate a situation and to make the right call. And um, one thing that I want to add is that the officer in um, George Floyd's case, he was ex-military, but he had been out of the military for a very, very long time. And, I think that the training with the military has gotten significantly better. The culture has gotten better. The training has gotten better. New things are coming to light. They're definitely trying to make it a better culture. And I think that there is not something wrong with the cops on an individual level, but there is a issue with the culture surrounding the police department. And they are not held accountable for their actions by their peers. And one thing I want to bring up is something that I've kind of carried with me throughout life that I just kind of want to change just slightly in the wording was don't measure a man based on how he treats people in power. Judge a man and measure a man based on how he treats those without power, because When cops are interacting with other cops, it's all good. We're all on the same side. But when you go out there and you deal with people who have literally no power and you have the authority and you treat them like shit to the point where you kill them without mercy, that to me is an issue with the culture. And I feel like military people have a culture where they respect even the people without power, even the most vulnerable people that they encounter. They still respect their individual rights to life as a human being. And I just don't know what happened with the police department. I don't know how that slipped away from them because they're the ones working with people that they go to church with, people that they shop at the same grocery store with. You know, you have these military people going into foreign lands with people that don't even speak the same language as them and they can deescalate a situation, but you have somebody that you are from the same town and you can't even deescalate that situation that doesn't make sense
1: and again just like you said yeah you took the you took the words right out of my mouth